Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Blended, our new show all about diversity, inclusion, and everything in between. So far on the show, we've explored the words we use for unrepresented groups and their meanings, the workplace gender imbalance. We've dug into our panelists' personal experience and stories and shone a light on what diversity and inclusion looks like across the globe. And this is only episode five. I really hope you're enjoying the show. I know I am, so please keep listening. And don't forget to let us know if there are any topics you'd really like to see us cover this year. Before we dive into today's episode, it's really important that we have sponsors like Ships, Apex, and Mercado that really help us drive the change and make the impact that we want to make in the industry. So I'd like to take a a moment to thank our sponsors. Ships is a new platform bringing neutral bid and ship freight solutions to mid-market shippers. Working to simplify the complexities often found in logistics, the Ships platform closes the gap between shippers and forwarders, creating an accessible and happy hassle-free supply chain for all. Using insight-driven change, collaboration, and a passion for better business, Ships delivers industry-leading solutions for its customers. Find out more at Ships, that's S-H-I-P-Z dot com. Apex, diversity and inclusion is a core value of Apex Logistics with over 80% minority employed and 42% female executive leadership. Apex understands that celebrating diversity in the workplace is vital and impactful, bringing together a variety of backgrounds and skill sets to create a strong and collaborative culture with highly skilled individuals. Our partnership with Blended emphasizes our commitment to this important principle. Visit them at apexglobe.com. And last but absolutely not least, Mercado. At Mercado, diversity is a foundational issue. Having spent our entire careers in a global industry, we welcome and celebrate diversity. It's an honor to support Let's Talk Supply Chain and Blended in their efforts to promote diversity in such a meaningful and impactful way. Mercado is an international supply chain platform that creates solutions for importers by transforming supply chain processes, allowing companies to bring their products to market better, faster, and cheaper. Mercado's goal focuses on mitigating risk and eliminating pain across the international supply chain. This ultimately ensures companies get their products to market with greater efficiency and at lower cost through leveraging the platform's 70-plus procurement, ordering, and shipping features. So welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by a group of amazing supply chain professionals who are going to give their perspectives today on a really huge issue. So welcome to Len, Madison, Al, Audrey, and JD. Thank you so much for joining me. We will get to their introductions in just a second. Today, we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, this is something that could easily have its own podcast, and we're sure to look at it again in the future. But for today, we're going to be looking at it specifically with 2020 in mind, why the movement blew up last year, the support, the lack of support it received, its commercialization, and our panelists' reflection on all of this. So let's get started with some introductions. Can you each tell me who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what Black Lives Matter means to you? Len, we're going to start with you. 
Sure. So my name is Lynn Ellis. I am co-founder and CEO of Everlasting Love Fulfillment. We are an Atlanta-based third-party logistics company serving in the e-commerce realm. I personally identify as a Black woman. Um, and as a Black woman, Black Lives Matter means to me that our existence as Black people is no less important than that of any of our non-minority counterparts um, and that our lives should be treated as equal. Love it. Love it. I'm so excited to have you here today. Al, we're going to go to you. You're next. Tell us who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does BLM mean to you? Sure. Hey, all. I'm Al Moss. Um, he, him, his. I am a black male. That's how I identify. Uh, what I do, I'm a, a husband. I'm a father of three. I am a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. And for work on the side, I'm a global vice president of supply chain for PCI Pharma Services. It's a global clinical and commercial contract packaging and manufacturing uh, pharmaceutical firm. What Black Lives Matter uh, means to me. So I like to draw a lot of parallels out of things that aren't quite parallel. So stay with me for a second. <laughs> One of my favorite movies movies in the world is Goodwill Hunting with Robin Williams and Matt, Matt Damon. I've, I've watched it probably 40 times. Towards the end, after there's the aha moment and, and Matt Damon is, is somewhat uh, cures kind of some of the issues that he's been going through, Robin Williams repeats a phrase, fault. It's not your fault. Um, and at the beginning, Matt Damon is kind of like, yeah, I get it, I know. But then he understands that it's much it's much deeper than that. And he breaks down and cries. To me, that's a bit of Black Lives Matter, right? Where it's really a simple, a simple statement. But the fact that it has to be said, it has to be said over and over again. And it continues, to, we continue to have to teach people what it truly means um, is, is really, really complicated. So that's what it means to me. And tiring, I would I would imagine. And, you know, I also think that, you know, at the height of the movement, which was what, like six months ago, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Right. Because I think some of the support has waned since then, because it's not necessarily in the news as much as it was before. And we're going to talk about that today. And I'm really glad that you're here with us, Al, to talk about some of those conversations that need to be had. So, Audrey, over to you. Welcome. Tell us who you are, what you do, um, what was the question, how you identify, and what does Black Lives Matter mean to you? Uh, so I'm Audrey Ross. I'm here in Toronto, Canada. I'm a logistics and custom specialist at Orchard uh, Custom Beauty, which is a private labeling company that does cosmetics, beauty tools, bath accessories, um, all those fun things. Um, so I do the international trade piece and move goods all over the world. We manufacture in like 10 different countries. We have customers in like 16. I am cisgender, she, her. Um, I am a white woman. And, you know, for me, Black Lives Matter, it's, it, you know, it's, I think it, it represents the need for attention on a group that has been devalued and not um, treated equally. Um, for mo most of our history and, and actively so. It's really not passive. It's really been active. And so, yeah, so whatever I can do um, in my position of, of being a white woman and, and supporting this movement, that's what I'm here to do um, and to educate myself and to um, listen and take action. Um, yeah. 
and be part of conversations like this. And I appreciate you being here. So mm -hmm. thank you, Audrey. JD, over to you. Tell us who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does BLM mean to you? Hello, everybody. I'm JD Redmond. I'm the founder and chief creative officer at AXE EXPD. We're a marketing firm. Just started that about six months ago. So really proud of the growth that we've seen there. Um, I am a cis man, he, him, his, uh, black man at that stone cold black man. Skin is black and I'm proud of it. I used to hate that as a kid. Um, but now I'm actually very proud of my darker skin tone. When it comes to Black Lives Matter, for me, it's a deeper movement. So Sarah knows, but you know, my grandmother was born on a plantation. She picked cotton. She was born in 1946. This isn't someone that you can't touch again, 1946. So Black Lives Matter for me is bringing awareness to the fact that we will sit here and say, happy Martin Luther King Day. We have Black History Month and we love to give all these quotes from all these great black leaders, but we're still talking about the same thing that they were fighting for and that they died for. And the Black Lives Matter movement to me is bringing attention and awareness to the fact that it's time for the conversation to stop being so hypothetical and there needs to be action behind this movement. And that's what I believe we saw last year was a people that finally got tired of having to repeat this. And the last thing I'll say kind of to Al's point is that parallel of people getting it, seeing signs of people saying, I marched for this already. Like we've already had marches for this. We've already tried to bring down the walls and the barrier to allow people to understand that African-Americans do have a seat at the table and not only deserve a seat, but are qualified for that seat. Same education, same schools, HBCUs are great. Shout out to Grambling State University. You know, we, we have these beautifulness about us, but we were taught not to like ourselves. And for some reason, the countries around America were taught to not like darker skins. This isn't just Black African-Americans. This goes into um, Pakistanis. It goes into the Indian culture. For some reason, darker skin seems to be frowned upon. And so this movement is global like it should be. I already know that this is going to be an emotional episode for me and I'm going to cry and I'm just going to let you guys all know that ahead of time because I'm almost already there. Um, and so thank you, JD, for being here. I'm, I'm super just glad that you're part of this conversation. I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. One thing that people don't know, and before we get to Madison, my husband's background is Trinidadian. Um, and so, and my, my stepkids are mixed and so this is a really, really important topic for me. It was something that, you know, in our household needed to be talked about, but we didn't really talk about it until everything came to light. And I realized how important it was to have these conversations and to talk about them. So I'm already getting emotional, but that's okay. Madison, over to you. Tell us who you are, what you do, how you identify and what BLM means to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I'm so happy to be here and happy to be part of this conversation. Uh, my name is Madison Mobley. I'm currently a, a senior account executive at a company called Fair Market. We are a procurement tech provider and I sell intelligent sourcing software and I'm having fun doing it. Um, so I'm happy to say that as far as how I identify, I am black, I'm female, I'm millennial. And I do identify as someone who's in the uh, LGBTQIA plus uh, community. And as far as what BLM 
um, means to me. It's it's a few things. It's of course about elevating um, the human condition, but specifically focusing on uh, black lives. And, and to JD's point um, around darker skin tones, we've also seen conversations happen around black and indigenous people of color as a collective. So it, it's very much some of that, but everything from, you know, countering and combating acts of violence that we've seen, you know, targeted specifically towards, you know, kind of our, our people, but even thinking about how we create space for uh, Black innovation, imagination, and joy, I think is also part of the conversation because we are tired, but at the same time, I think when you think about our history, there's so much to be joyful about as well. And I think that's what helps me remain, you know, optimistic enough about where we're going, but I'm also very direct about where we aren't. <laughs> so that's kind of how I'll say it and, and leave it at that as far as my little intro. But I'm so excited for this conversation. I love it. And I know you're going to bring it today. So I'm so glad that you are here with us today. So let's start with some context. Black Lives Matter as a group or a movement isn't new, but in 2020, it hit the headlines across the world. After the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting of African-American teen Trayvon Martin and a number of deaths at the hands of police, probably most notable, the absolutely horrifying death of George Floyd, America and the world world really decided it was time to take some action. So how did that make you feel specifically as people of color? You know, were you mad? Were you hopeful? What was the general feeling amongst the population at that time? I don't know who wants to start, but whoever wants to jump in, go right ahead. I, I guess I can start. Um, so, so for me, right, it's uh, when you first see it, it's as a black, it's here we go again. Uh, we've seen it time and time and time uh, and there's always an excuse or or some reason why it's probably justified we really don't don't know i think the reaction in this particular case um it's not the first time this this type of thing was caught on film but it was caught on film i think it was the how gruesome it was eight minutes and 46 seconds right so usually it's a gunshot or it's something that's short that's on tape that you know you don't know the whole story there's a million different ways that that thing could have stopped within that eight minutes and 46 seconds and it just it just didn't not only did it not stop they were actually preventing people from stopping it so it was a gruesome murder that was caught on tape um people I, I always, when I see these types of things and these types of videos, it, it's difficult to watch. Um, they make me often make me cry, but I feel like I owe it to the individual who is being tortured to at least see their story, see what's happening to them. So for eight minutes and 46 seconds, we're watching this person's story unfold. And I think because of everything that was going on in the world and people were just generally aggravated, um, you know, it blew up. So we'll, We'll, we'll see what happens. I think that we're in a place in America, specifically where we are fighting for the soul of America. I think if people believe the Capitol riots are 100% about Donald Trump and, and are not um, at least partly about the things that happened this summer and a response to um, the protests that occurred this summer, I think people are, are kidding themselves. I was more hopeful back in July, August, September than I am now, frankly. 
Wow. And that's, that's just really honest, right? The fact that, you know, you sat there and cried, you know, and you shared that with us and just your honesty about where you were in 2020 and where you are right now and how much of a difference that is. Does anybody else want to weigh in on, on how they were feeling in 2020 and maybe how they're feeling right now in 2021? I think 2020 for me was a was an eye opener. Growing up in the South in Louisiana, especially in the country, uh, what they call Bayou Land, you know, I was experiencing this my entire life. You know, being snapped at, a boy, you know, not really having the the gratitude the gratitude or understanding of why I was being treated differently. But my first experience, and I'll get to 2020, was I was an athlete and I was pretty okay, which meant that I was what we would call in the black community, a house Negro. I could go into the house and be complimented and comforted and they would talk to me because that boy can run that football, you know, and because he can run that football, we'll give him privileges that we don't give to other people. And I didn't notice that. Fast forward into 2020, I noticed that it didn't matter anymore because I didn't have any of those accolades. Although during 2020, I was a vice president and I was at a company that I helped grow very strong I was still just a black man, you know, even in the city that we worked in, in Texas, we had to stop and talk to the sheriff's office and say, hey, we are now bringing in a multicultural company. Company, I need you not to pull over the brown and black people that are coming through the city inside of Argyle, Texas. People that stayed there started putting bumper stickers on saying, keep Argyle white. This is 2020. We're not talking 1940, 1960, 1920s. We're talking 2020. So when this movement happened, I was excited because I said, man, I really want us to finally unite. But what I was afraid of was that we had a lot of these young people that had the, the unction to get out and march. But I didn't know if they had the leadership to actually communicate with the people in the community and verbalize their frustration. And so in some of these protests, which I believe there's a difference, and I want to make this known, there's Black Lives Matter, which was a protest that was supposed to be peaceful, and then there were rioters. They are not the same. People went out to protest. People went out to march peacefully for Black Lives Matter. Rioters and thieves and organized criminals came out and used that as an opportunity to mask what they were, which are just truly, to me, scum. But it messed up our Black Lives Matter. My concern was, we need people like on this call who could take the frustration of the people and then go and talk to in Dallas, which is Clay Jenkins, the county judge, or talk to Mayor Johnson or sit in front of these people and articulate how can we formulate plans that will help and aid us. But to Al's point, here we go again, because we don't we should have to do this again. You have J.D.'s and Al's and Lynn's and Madison's in your community that you can reach out to right now that can help you facilitate this conversation about how we can stop these issues, but they're not reached out to. And the thing is, and, and the assumption I begin to make, and it's truly an assumption, but it also began to turn into a, a true belief. Maybe this is what some Caucasians may want. Maybe they're used to being at a certain tier level and the thought and fear of being equal to someone who has always been deemed equal is so scary to them that we will we have to now persecute and kill. And you have some people that say, well, man, what about my race? You know, the white race is going away. Black people are taking over. 2020 for me for Black Lives Matter truly was a, a eye opener. But what I'm hoping is 
We don't stop with the post and the cutesy videos, but we actually implement things. I'm not happy that you got a chief diversity officer. What are you gonna do with that chief diversity officer? I'm not happy that you sat there and had a DEI conversation. What are you gonna do after that? Because a lot of these companies that did all these big things and cutesy things, they're silent right now and their employees are still suffering. Yeah, and I love that you just said that because I was talking to a lady who's actually going to be on the next episode. And I wish that she could have been on this episode as well because she has a non-for-profit and she's helping um, the youth in some of the neighborhoods get access to people and mentors that can help them learn certain skills and different things. When the BLM movement happened in 2020, everybody came out and they were like, here's some donations, throwing money at her. And she was like, wait, 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 wait a second. I'm not just taking it just to take it. And then by September, they all dried up and said, "Mm, you know what? We've changed our mind. We don't have that kind of budget anymore. What does that say to you? Like that shouldn't even be a thing. So you were okay in July, but you're not okay in September. We need to keep this conversation going. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to to have this conversation today. Madison, I I saw you came off of mute. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because when I think about what my initial reaction was to seeing George Floyd get murdered, so plus one to what Al said, here we go again, because we've seen this a few times, plus one to JD's comment around, does it even matter anymore? as a black person in this country, because I think what's powerful about us being in the digital age is that information is so accessible now, right? You would think that an incident like this being caught on camera, thank God for the digital universe. Like you would think that, like this is this is evidence that can be used to protect the integrity of this, or the lack of integrity, right, of this situation. And yet it's still, let us smack in the middle of conversations around, well, should he have been purchasing that thing that he was purchasing that day? And how do we justify the fact that this murder did actually make sense? And I'll be honest, I had a moment where, and let's not forget the fact that we were all still going to work, right? When this this was happening. So we've got to come into work. I'm in sales. Every day is a super positive day. (laughs) Let's go get some coins. And I, I remember... I feel like I was in a stupor all summer, honestly, of 2020. Yes, I was still showing up to work, but I had moments where my existence actually stopped making a lot of of logical sense because of the, the, the signs and the signals that were constantly being put into the stratosphere. Um, but, but I agree what's very important about true systemic change is getting the right people in the right seats with, a little bit more stamina, right, then we should even be required to have to, to truly continuing to drive this forward. It, it's, it's a tough spot that we're all in um, to continue advancing uh, the, the state of humanity, right, like in 2021 and, and beyond, because there are so many emotions that have to be navigated delicately. And, and that's not even fair. Right. Like, I, I want to say it's not even fair, but it, it, it's just where we are. And, and I, I've yet to truly make sense of it, I think, some days. Yeah, it's, days. 
<laughs> it's it's a great point. And like, I'm going to share with you some of the stats because we we did a little bit of research, obviously, before this episode. And according to the stats, it grew increasingly like the BLM move, movement grew incre- increasingly popular through 2019 and 2020 with June 2020 poll finding that 67 percent of adult Americans expressed some support for the movement. What happened by September and going back to what I was saying about that example on the nonprofit it had already dropped down to 55% with notable declines amongst white whites and Hispanics. So now as a white woman, I'm ashamed to say that because obviously this should have powered a movement. We should be powering through with all of that, you know, motivation and inspiration that came, you know, in June of 2020 and before that, right? Like this is not something new guys. So we need to talk about it. You know, why, why do you think that that support dropped so quickly? Have you had those discussions? Is it something that people are talking about or is it something that, oh yeah, that happened in 2020, you know, we're, we're moving forward with 2021. Um, I'll chime in here. I do think that a number of things played into why there was this huge surge of support and then it drastically dropped down. Um, I have had conversations amongst, you know, peers and friends. And I think one of those things that may sound very odd to say is that we experienced immediately after, you know, George Floyd was this overwhelming amount of white guilt um, you know, with it, you know, it turned into the buy black, like, okay, let me go out and do what I can to support these black brands or, you know, black foundations with your friend and the nonprofit. It is, let me try to pour, you know, something in that because George Florida, it was so in our face and no matter what race you are as a human being, I think we all felt the brunt of that a little bit differently in a sense. Um, So I think that was one thing, but like you said, months later, it kind of is now swept under the rug. The protests have died down, you know, like you said, we're in a pandemic now. And so it it has shifted some. Um, And I think another thing that JD mentioned was just the difference between the peaceful protest and the rioting. Um, I think unfortunately Black Lives Matter got a bad name because of all the rioting that happened because we were trying to protest for this cause and it was taken advantage of. So some people see that as, you know, these hoodlums, these thugs are out, you know, using this as an excuse, right, to riot and to loot and do things like that. So I think that those two things, right, trying to cure our own guilt in some way to be supportive and then just how unfortunate it was that those people took advantage of the movement um, that was you know genuinely meant to to try to bring about change yeah no absolutely and you make a a really good point there because there was a lot of guilt like you could feel it right like like i don't know about you guys but i could feel it like there was guilt you know i've and it's changed some of the way that I've had conversations within my family as well, because, you know, those were conversations, not from a guilt place, because I feel like, you know, I, I, I try to have an impact through conversations like this. Um, but, you know, just a, just a question, like, how do you identify? right? Because I was learning so much about how people identify. And there were people of mixed race that were on Instagram doing a video and saying they were, they were crying because finally people understood a little bit about how 
they felt because they not necessarily felt they were part of the black community. They didn't necessarily feel like they were part of the white community. And now people were starting to understand that identification and the way we identify is so much more important. And for me, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement helped with that and moved the needle with that. And I think that that's a big part of this conversation is about identifying. And how do you identify? Right? Um, I think in a lot of these conversations, my husband gets told he's um, Egyptian, people come up to him and talk to him in Spanish, they come up to him and talk to him in Arabic, because he could pass for any other any one of those cultures. And he was born in Canada, right? And so it's interesting to have those conversations where we're talking to people and really understanding who they are as a person. Um, Audrey, you came off mute. I, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, to jump in on that too, though, Sarah, like we've never had to identify ourselves. Nope. That's right. Right. So I think, I think we often, um, you know, as a white woman, you know, I don't think I until recently have ever identified myself as a white woman. I didn't right. have to. Um, just that's the level of, of cultural and dominance that we have. And, you know, I think it's really important for us to keep educating ourselves on the fact that, you know, we live in a world that defaults to certain, you know, to these, to these structures. I mean, it's all been built to default in a certain way. And to just ignore that is just, we can't move forward if we keep ignoring that. Um, I did want to jump back to something that, that JD and Len said that I just find it, you know, I, I can't even imagine the exhaustion that, that you would have because I find it just offensive that when there are these protests that, you know, immediately the mainstream media response, the pundit response, the white people response is like, well, they're violent. And you're like, well, you're killing them. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Like you killed my cousin. Yeah. I'm going to be mad about it. I'm going to, yeah. You know, and the fact that we have protests that are so peaceful and, and, and just, you know, reinforcing the work that has been, is being doing every single day. And that it's like, yeah, someone set something on fire. You're like, the fact that we don't set stuff on fire more over these lost lives. These are, these are people's lives. And it just, it, I just find it offensive to see the news. And it's like, oh, well, you know, they didn't protest properly. Or that wasn't this way that I would have accepted if they'd done it this way. Then, of course, we would have changed. No, <laughs> you're not changing anything. Because these you're not out on the street protesting because change is happening and things are good. That's not why. So I just, that it drives me, it drives me absolutely nuts. And I think that's where, um, if I can do anything in my conversations and with my connections and family and friends and to just like, stop, stop with this. There's no perfect protest. And like, and to think like, you know, Stacey Abrams took, what did it take her two years, three years, four years? to just every single minute of her day working to change voter regulations. That's how the, the work is being done by people all over the place. And at the same time, white people are doing the, the work to keep it, keep people oppressed. That is active work that is done by people in our governments, by people in business, by white people. 
every single day are actively making choices, voting for people, putting in regulations that actively oppress people. And, you know, it's not just like, it's not simple, but it's also, you know, there is an activity level. And to think that, oh, it's just a protest. You're like, oh, there's so much more than that. But just a protest for me, that's what, when you say that, Audrey, like, I wish, and I said this to my papa one day, I said, I wish I knew the feeling of what it was like to be a white man and just go around the country and never have a fear of anything. Just to have that, you can go to any city. I live in Dallas. You would think it's multicultural, but there are certain cities I know not to go to as a black man after a certain time. When I'm going to Walmart and I'm walking outside to my car and it's late at night and there are some white ladies there, I'm jingling my keys to make myself known. Like, hey, the threat that I know you think I am, I'm not a threat. Doot, doot, doot. My car is over here. You're going to the right. I'm going to the left. You know, there are oftentimes I'm walking past them and, and they grab their purse. And I've gotten to the point where I say, ma'am, nine times out of 10, I probably make more money than you. So you don't have to grab your purse around me. Please don't grab your purse like that. That just irks me. But the thought of my black skin is so fearful that it makes you just look at me as an instantaneous threat. I don't have a record. I've never been arrested. I've never had any run-ins. I'm educated, well-educated at that. And to think that the fear that you have of walking around is so great. So going to those Black Lives Matter protests wasn't just like we're fighting because, you know, we're tired of being killed. It was also risking your life because you knew that in some of these protests, you could get arrested you knew that somebody might come up with a bullet, pop you right quick just because you're black and frustrating them. You knew that about yourself. And as a black member of society, whether male or female, there are even times and I'm going to be quiet on this one. There are oftentimes you will hear them say, just so anyone listening, if I was walking past me and I didn't know him, I was going on black man. I see you. You might think that's just a colloquial, but it's not. It's me saying, hey, Al, I know you walk throughout the day. Nine times out of 10, people are afraid of you. They try to ignore you. They try not to see you. Hey, black man, I see you. And we make it a big thing because we feel invisible so much. This Black Lives Matter movement is emotional to us because every single day there's that fear. If, if I get pulled over and I know I have insurance and I know I have my driver's license and I know I have everything I need, am I going to be the next hashtag tomorrow? Is it going to be hashtag JD Redmond? And that's the fear that you have in our society undercover of feeling that of I can't move certain ways or you will hear. And I'm, I'll be quiet after this. I said that last time, but you will hear. Hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to my friend's house. Call me when you get there. I want to know. It might be 25 minutes down the road. Call me when you get there. I want to know you there. This was before Black Lives Matter. This is how black people communicate in our sub community, because I need to know that you are safe. And hey, you're going to have to drive through that city. Make sure you're doing the speed limit, man, because if you ain't doing the speed limit, they don't give them a reason to pull you over. It's so tiring being us that it was actually a breath of fresh air for COVID for me not to have to worry about going outside because I knew right. I was safe at home. Yeah. So I have a, a kind of a Goodwill hunting-esque um, uh, antidote about, about the whole protest versus riot. So where obviously rioting is wrong. From my perspective, it was uh, completely predictable, right? Like, like it was. It's clear that this is going to happen. There's no right way to protest. Everybody looks, you know, Colin Kaepernick. That was the wrong way to protest. I think about 
just a general relationship, right? So a relationship, a man and a woman, or, you know, two, two individuals have, if one person doesn't feel heard in that relationship, if it's important to them, they're going to continue to fight for it. And they're going to get a little bit louder. If they still feel like they're not being heard in that relationship, they're going to get louder and they're going to throw their arms up and they're going to yell and they're going to scream. If they still, still feel like they're not being heard, they may throw something against the wall. They may break things. They're going to do something if it's important, if it's urgent to them to make the other person in the relationship listen. And it's always an escalation point. It's, so at some point, America could have chosen to stop and listen and have a conversation, but that never happened. Every time someone, a person of color articulated an issue in a calm way, it was turned on its side and it was turned negative a la Car uh, Colin Kaepernick. So, so it was, it was completely predictable. It is the riot is, you know, the, 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 the language of the unheard. So it's understanding clearly we were heard at for one second. How do we get to the point where riots don't have to happen again for us to feel heard? Otherwise it's going and I'm going to predict it right now. And by the way, everyone said how horrible it was and you know, it's terrible. No one ever wants to hear about riots, but we also start to see a little bit of change. So I need your mouths to resemble your actions make the change before we get to the point where we feel like there's nothing left to do but throw things against the wall. Yeah, absolutely. And because we're on the the topic of, you know, the the protests and obviously with COVID, there was a lot and you've probably heard most of this, but there was a lot of people talking about how can people be out there protesting when people are dying? right? During the middle of a global pandemic, we also had the BLM pro protests and the riots and everything like that. And so it really compounded everything at once, right? Because it set, it's estimated that 15 million and 26 million people participated in the protests just in the U.S. alone. And I found it really ironic that people were saying things like people are dying because of COVID. You shouldn't be out doing this. Well, when is a good time? Because honestly, I don't know when would be a good time, whether we're in a global pandemic or not in a global pandemic, things need to change and we need to make, we need to make an impact. So what, what do you guys think about, you know, those comments and what would you say to those people? Madison, I think you came off mute earlier. Yeah, um, those comments, I mean, depending on what side of, of them you're on, it it makes it crystal clear where we're at and how much further we have to go, um, period. Because, and, and I'll use the example of, you know, that, that young cop that got, what, the $15,000 fine for shooting bullets into the wall of Breonna Taylor's apartment unit, but there were no, I mean, if, if, it was not made abundantly clear, no, ma no matter the comment that you dissect around that time. And, and let's not forget the fact that um, COVID disproportionately was impacting black and brown families. 
right? So, so like, yeah, we're out here protesting because not only is is just basic breathing, right? Like, not only is breathing an issue, but we also now have this pandemic that is accelerating the rate at which we are being taken from this earth before our time, arguably, right? And so, yeah, for me, it was just a wake up, you know, I told you I was kind of in that summer stupor, but also, you know, I woke up out of that real quick because it's like, all right, I'm very clear about where we're at. <laughs> Let, let's now collectively get clear on how much work we've got to do and pour yourself an extra cup of coffee today because the comments don't make sense. They are very contradictory, but they also illuminate where kind of collective America Right, right, is is at in terms of like the hierarchy of things and people, and we've got work to do. We just got work to do. Lots of work to do. Now there yeah. were some people though that I do want to shout out, like Shelly Simpson from JB Hunt, Brad Jacobs from XPO. I had personal conversations with both of them. I was very impressed by the Caucasian people that I knew professionally and personally that reached out and said, JD, what can I do? And I always started that conversation with, well, what you should have been doing was and what you can do now is. But I am thankful that there is now conversations happening in the boardroom with mixed DNI, DEI. I will take that. I don't take the fact that every chief diversity officer has to be black. I don't believe that. You know, I believe that we can have chief diversity officers that are white, whatever color they may need to be. What we're trying to get to is that similar to what the the guy from Wells Fargo said when he was like, oh, well, we, we try to hire people of color, but we can't find them. First off, that's a lie. I had one of my peers say that that's in Tyler, Texas. And I said, dude, you're four miles away from an HBCU. Wiley College is down the road. He's like, what's Wiley College? Well, God dang, let me talk to you about it. You know, and it's and it was just intriguing because now I'm starting to see that it's not because you didn't know, it's because you chose not to know. You chose not to engage. You chose not to go look for. Because I promise you, HBCUs and other non-HBCU institutions, universities are pumping out amazing, amazing people of color with degrees. Black women have been the most educated group coming out of colleges for the past three years running. That's a stat go fact check me. So you can't tell me that you can't find black and brown people that are qualified. You're sitting on a call right now or a podcast or you're in your car, your home, you're cooking, whatever you may be doing right now. You're listening to four African-Americans who are all doing exactly what you say you can't find someone to do that looks like us. So it's not a matter of resources. It's a matter of intent. And that's when I started realizing that this intent of the systemic racism has been bore into people since they were children. The same way I was taught about Biggie and Pac and my grandmother, you know, how she struggled in the cotton field. Some Caucasians are taught from inception. Black people are horrible. You shouldn't be around them. Don't you bring that black man home. You better date in your race. And and you can choose to, to listen to that rhetoric or you can choose to gain your own understanding. But at the end of the day, it's a choice. And your intent is what I watched throughout the Black Lives Matter movement was that some people were just so far removed from the struggle that they can't even fathom that there are people struggling like this. The last thing I'll say is, yes, I've got great, gotten to a great salary. I've gotten to a great place in life. 
but I haven't forgotten where I come from. But I have to realize that some people didn't come from back there. Some people started where I've gotten to and they can't even fathom what what we go through. So then we have to educate these people. Now, I'll go smile one more time. This is the last thing I'm gonna say. I promise people listening. There is also a responsibility, and this is an unpopular opinion. There's a responsibility for African-Americans to check each other. Because although we got Lynn and Al and Madison on the call right now, we're all very great and educated. There are some of our family members, friends, and cousins that we know good and well, we kind of separate ourselves from because they are truly the epitome of what a lot of United States and America or other countries believe African-Americans are. So there is a responsibility as a black man and black woman that we reach back into our own communities and help to try to uplift if they allow. I'm done. <laughs> that is such a powerful point, you know, like if they'll allow. And I agree with you 100%. Everything in life is about choices and it's about intention. And it's about, you know, going out there and educating yourself and figuring out, you know, who's out there? What is out there as resources? Who can we talk to, you know, about all of this? And I think it's up to everyone to take that and run with it and to, you know, to really be able to have the intention around it and go and find it for ourselves. Because I don't think that it's really up to anybody else to do that for us either, which is, which must be so frustrating and tiring, you know, and just from having this conversation, I can, I could only imagine, and I can't, I absolutely cannot. So the other thing that I want to talk about, and I want to do this because I know, I know Madison has to jump off soon, but I want to talk about all lives matter. Can we talk about the comeback to BLM, which is all lives matter, okay? We saw this coming from certain communities, the no all lives matter response, the all lives matter response, it's created this whole other conversation around what the, the Black Lives Matter movement was truly there to be. So can you guys explain for people that genuinely might not realize or understand what's the difference and why BLM isn't in fact taking away from the importance of other lives? Who wants to take this one? I know you guys have got lots to say about this. Y'all, let, let me pop in real quick because I'm sweating right now. Whenever <laughs> I hear the phrase, all lives matter, take me out back and kick me because the conversation's over. What, where should I go with this? Pick an analogy, any analogy. Listen, if I break my arm today, would you expect me to leave the hospital in a body cast? Yes or no? You wouldn't. Why? Because I broke my arm. My body's not broke, just my arm. And so that's what comes to mind. If a house is on fire on the block, do we hose the neighborhood down or do we focus on the house that's burning? <laughs> Raise your hand if you have an answer. Like, it, it's very simple. And I get so upset. It, where, where do they make humans like that? To where that simple concept just cannot be understood when it's time for Black folks to be, <laughs> to be considered. Just, just for a second. Where do they make them like that at? I don't know. And that's all I have to say on the matter. Because I, because it gets to a place where I'm questioning my own sanity because I was taught when you think about things that were instilled, um, that are instilled in us rather as children. One of the things that my parents taught me early is listen to what's being said. The power of the pregnant pause, 
then respond. That was something I learned early. And it doesn't matter what you look like. If you say something to me, I'm going to listen first. I'm going to give it a pregnant pause and then I'm going to respond. And so I don't like questioning my sanity on what should be so simple. So simple. I yeah, love what's that. Also, what's also interesting about the whole thing is is the reality when 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 anyone dies, you know, brutally by authorities, the reality is Black Lives Matter is is there, right? So um obviously black folks are at the you know being put in the forefront because of the masses um, that is happening the atrocities that are happening but if there's a latinx person who who dies at the hands of um governmental agencies if there's a white person that dies at those hands black lives matter is there saying that this is atrocious and that it should never happen so the reality is black lives matter is living the mantra all lives matter more so than anyone else they just others just like to use it as a comeback to black lives matter so they're not really interested in the issue that they they believe that they're arguing or they're trying to argue they're just frankly more anti something than they are for anything that's an interesting way to look at it i haven't actually even thought about that but i think you're right right they don't well, want to get behind go ahead audrey there when if you respond with that that is immediately to be just a red flag of like how ignorant you are because either one, you're just full on racist and two or two, you just couldn't be bothered to take five minutes to look into why this might be important or you don't watch apparently any facts about how like it just is such a, it's, it makes me cringe. But it's, it tells me so much more about you because you clearly don't care. There's no way you can say that in response to black. There's no way you can say that and have any sort of compassion or caring. And that also you're just not even willing to put in five or 10 minutes of research into why this might be important or why we're, why this might be a community issue. And it's so true that Black Lives Matter as a community you know, is, is working hard for a community to make the community around, you know, whichever, you know, kind of municipality you're in, you know, it's a, it's a big movement, but it's also a little movement of making day-to-day -day lives better for everyone. So it just, to me, it's such a, like, if you, you know, you just clearly don't care about the fact that black people are, you know, greatly undervalued, black people die at a higher rate. You're fine with the state authorities, you know, killing people, but it just, I don't even have words, sorry. It just drives me nuts. I would always use the example, if your son passed away or your child passed away and they died and you're trying to get your son taken care of, you're trying to get the funeral arrangements and you're telling everybody like, hey, you know, the funeral's on Friday. And then I go get my little yellow man and I say, hey, my son's birthday's Friday. My son's birthday matters too. And that person sitting there being like, my child, my child died, JD. And I'm like, I don't give a flying blankety blank. My son's birthday party's at two o'clock. I invited you. I expect you to be there. I don't care if your son's funeral was at 11 a.m. on Friday. My son's birthday party's at 2 p.m. on Friday. Be there. The, the way that that's so insensitive 
is the same way that saying all lives matter, because I never said that all lives didn't matter. But what I can prove is throughout history, African-American lives have seemed to not matter as much as others. Throughout history, I can show you how television was predominantly white. Radio was predominantly white. I can show how you did blackface. I can show how you use this as only just predominantly slaves or servants or um, indentured people who didn't know anything else. I can show how you utilize us as that and also show how you stole jazz and rock and all these things from our culture that was that was us soul food that everyone loves so much. That was the scraps that we learned how to make taste good because that's all we were given. So now we have a whole literal like food sect designated to slave food that people love so much that we made popular but it isn't given credit so we're not saying that our lives don't matter i've never said that and to al's point i show up when other people pass away i show up the same strength when a police officer takes a hispanic life a caucasian life i don't care i'm gonna hold you accountable but all i'm saying is it just seems as though by facts and stats that we are seeing this over and over and over again so we're just saying hey by the way tired of dying hey by the way tired of living in fear hey by the way i'm tired of telling my five-year-old son hey you need to make sure that when you're walking around these people be careful son keep your head up make sure if you don't know these people that you need to call your daddy if you're not around anyone you don't see anyone who looks like you make sure you're around someone who does spot somebody who you feel like is safe to be around i'm tired of having this conversation with my five-year-old son about how he's different i'm tired of it yeah no it's it's true and the data doesn't lie right now we have all of the facts we have all of the data not that we needed that before but we have access to all of that right now and none of that lies and now we it cannot be ignored and it should not be ignored um so i guess my my question around all lives matter as well since we're talking about it how should we go about educating ourselves? How do we best listen to black voices and support them? I know we're going to talk a little bit about allyship, I think a little bit later, but I want to talk in the context of all lives matter and how do we educate and how do we bring everybody together? Are there any resources that we should go to? Um, so I think I don't know broadly about resources, but um, I think Sarah, you mentioned this earlier about starting within your circle um, and having yes. these conversations yes. in your family group. Um, I think it is that I had, you know, definitely tons of friends reach out and say, what can I do? Um, how can I help? I think it is just listening. Um, and I think if you listen to us long enough, those of people of color that are closest to you, I think you will hear the struggle that we've experienced um, firsthand from not just our generation, generations past, like JD said, his grandmother, you know, same situation. Uh, my parents are from Tennessee. So, you know, see, my parents didn't, you know, their high school wasn't integrated until they were in the 11th grade. That was the 60s. So we're not so far removed from it as we think. Um, so I think it is doing just that, like listening with an attentive ear, um, being empathetic, I think, and then really trying to promote change um, in any way that you can. Yeah, I, th I think yeah. that that's great. And, and honestly, you know, 
with the Black Lives Matter movement and at the time I started at home, right? Those were the impacts and the changes that I wanted to make and that I wanted to understand about the people that were in my circle. Um, and that's where I felt that I could I could help and make the most impact initially, right? And then it was about sitting back and listening and learning and watching what other people were doing and maybe posting and then really getting an idea of what it was that I could do with the platform that I have to be able to make that difference, whatever that looks like. Because I think, you know, we get too wrapped up in we've got to do all of these things and we've got to be perfect and all that kind of stuff. And we don't. It's just about starting where you can make an impact and taking action, which is what JD said earlier. Yeah, I think. Um, so I think people need to understand a bit more of their ignorances. I think they need to understand that ignorance within itself isn't necessarily bad, right? Like it's just, you don't know, it's a lack of knowledge. Willful ignorance is a whole, a whole different thing. So it's understanding that you're ignorant and there, there are many, many resources that are out there if you absorbs your ignorance, but you want to change that and you want to grow and learn as much as possible with understanding that you'll never be able to truly step a mile in the shoes of. But uh, Len mentioned an empathy is a recently read a book called cast, which is which was fantastic um, and really lays out the, the caste system that exists here in America and how it's uh, modeled after some other uh, caste systems in India and that there's always going to be some someone who's on the bottom and it's African-Americans here in the U.S. and people who are the next rung, they're not necessarily fighting to be at the top. They're fighting to make sure that they don't fall below the bottom because they're closer there than they are to the top. Um, there's I can't remember the name of the movie, but Netflix has a great movie about the prison industrial complex. There's there they're just a lot there are there's lots of information that are that's out there. But then just also be willing to, to sit up and, and have have a conversation, a true conversation. Um, but don't force your uh, people of color friends into those discussions if they're not ready or if you're not on that level yet, they'll let you know when you're on that on that level. Um, but understand that you're ignorant and try to change as much as possible every day. So to that point, um, episode one, I ended up asking somebody from the LGBTQ plus uh, community whether it was okay if I asked them how they identify. And his initial response was, well, it depends. It depends where we are. It depends how you ask it. It depends, it depends, it depends. And after we had the conversation, at the end of the conversation, he said, you know what, just ask me because I want you to know, I, I want you to know you can't guess, right? And I want to be able to tell you. So I guess my question to you is the same one. What questions can we ask? What questions can we have to start a conversation? Is there anything that we should be staying away from that maybe in our ignorance, we don't know is not the right question or the way to ask it? I don't know if it's so much of a question as much as during the Black Lives Matter movement, I was so surprised that a lot of my Caucasian peers, friends, associates were just surprised by the different acts that have taken place, Rosewood, Tulsa, 
Um, they were shocked to know that some of these cities were burned and pillaged and damaged just because they were thriving in Black Harlem in the in the early 30s and the in the late 40s, twice in Harlem. They were so shocked. And I think it's not a question. I think it's it's time for many of my Caucasian buddies to just kind of do a history research and actually look up and see what's taking place. Like, why did you burn down that city? What, what, what did we do to you? We, you gave us land. We weren't slaves anymore. We went and created our own prosperous economy, banks, doctors. You had dentists doing our own thing. But you were so afraid that we created this thriving utopia that you said, you know what? We got to go burn this down because like to Al's point, they're getting too close to our rung. And we can't lose our positioning. So let me make them start over again and start over again and start over again. And so then when the argument comes in, well, you know, slavery was so long ago. It was. But every time we got started, it got pillaged. So I would I would really want research to be done into the history. And I think some people would be shocked. Like one of my classmates, she was shocked that her great grandfather owned my great grandfather. You know, through her research, she realized we graduated together. But because she went she was like, J.D., I'm, I'm, I'm like, don't apologize for your grandpa. Like that was just that was the life he lived, that's the life he chose. But to that point, go pick up a book, go research it. Not what not what they taught in school, because black people weren't just slaves. Jeez. You know, go look past the history book and actually go pick up some some of your own studies and figure out. And then I believe the questions that come out of that will be more informed and will be more poignant instead of just what can I do or, or how can I change? It'll come from the light of, you know what, J.D., I recognize now that the same thing we're talking about here happened back in 1973 and it shouldn't be happening anymore. And it, it doesn't become a question of what can I do? It's going to be I know that I should be helping you do this. Yeah. OK. It, and it's a bit of so when you're when you're doing your research right there, are these events that are, that have occurred but it's also very, very important to, to research the underlining systems that continue to shape and shift to create the same types of um, uh, socioeconomic situations today as there were 10, 15, 20, 30 years, 40, 50, 100 years ago, right? Because what you'll hear is, well, I, I didn't massacre anyone. I didn't do this thing, but go look up you know, voter registration and why that's such a huge fight. Go look up redlining and why that's such a big thing. We talked a little bit about the prison industrial complex and why you see 15 cops on every city block and none in the suburbs, even though people in the suburbs use drugs just as much as people in the city. Um, you know, think about those different things and the systems that are created to make it appear as if this oppression doesn't still exist when it really has just shape-shifted and it's taken a different form. Okay. Yeah. And I think those are all great points, right? And I think, you know, coming into a conversation, having done the research and, and getting to understand the history, you might not understand it all, but I think if we were to, you know, come to you and ask different questions, but knowing that we've done, we've, we've done the work, you know, we've, we've put the effort in. It's not just about, Hey, can you tell me about this? Hey, can you tell me about that? It's like, no, I read about this. Was it maybe really like that? Or, you know, I don't know what that question could be, but well, I think, I think we also need to be open to the questions 
right? As well. Yeah. But when you've done some of the work, then you can, you can see, well, you know, when you do the work and you understand that everything, I mean, you know, everything is built around a white male, wealthy property owner. All of our rules are built around that. All of our laws are built around. And as a woman, that sucks. As an inter, with intersectionality of feminism, that sucks. With for anybody who's not a white wealthy man, that sucks. It sucks for all of us. And yet here we are living in this world where, like, I don't know how the population of white wealthy male men, but it's maybe like ten percent of us, and ninety percent of us have to live in this world. And then you're like, well, every time you vote every time you go to a store and you're fine with people making a minimum wage that doesn't pay their, like, there's so many things, but you know, when you're going to ask for me, if for me, what I've tried to do as much as possible is do all the, the, you know, the research that I can, all the reading that I can, if I see one of my friends um, or my connections, like Madison recommends something, I'm going to read it. If, you know, um, you know, when, when Black Lives Matter in June 2020 had sort of just a, a research, like a sort of moment, um, and you could see people, you know, sharing their bookshelves, being like, this is where I would start. You know, if, a, a, you know, a Black woman I follow on Instagram, it says, you should probably read this book. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to read that book. I'm not going to go into her and ask her a bunch of like, oh, what do you think about what's going on? She doesn't have time for that. And I'm not going to pay her for that. Like, am I going to pay her for that knowledge? If you're not going to, then don't harass her. Like read the stuff she tells you to read, you know, and then figure out what, you know, what your action steps are. You have to know, like, don't put that on someone else. Like if you're voting for someone who doesn't care about the minimum wage, doesn't care about healthcare for anybody, guess what? That's they're certainly not going to be caring about, you know, the best interests of black people. Um, so yeah, I think I think self-education is really, really important. And it comes to like your personal growth and your personal development, that's on you. And like JD said, it's not what you learn in school. They teach you like a fifth, a fifteenth of the things that you need to know to function in your life, let alone, you know, accurate history or accurate, you know. So I don't know. Yeah. Start definitely start with yourself. And there's lots of resources and like I've found a couple of great um you know, if you don't like to read or books are too long or whatever, there's this page on Instagram that I follow that breaks it down really nicely so that at least you get some bite-sized stuff. Um, but yeah, don't, don't bother. Yeah. And I don't just, waste the, don't waste people's time. Yeah. Like I black person's time, try to get them to like explain stuff to me. Yeah. Don't waste people's time. Or yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a movie on Netflix about CJ Walker. Uh, it's not really a movie. It's just a couple of episodes. I watched that the other week and I loved it. Like, I was like, why is it only four or five episodes? Maybe it's six episodes, but I was like, why can't we turn this into a longer show? Because it was, it was just something that was amazing to watch. I mean, Tiffany Haddish was great. Octavia Spencer was amazing. And it really showed, I think it started in the 1940s. And they're still in business today. It was talking about her getting into business for herself. And, and there was a lot of nuances in there that, you know, really opened my eyes to a lot of different things that, you know, went on and happened and different things like that. So a lot, a lot of stuff out there. And I think we're going to get to resources. But one of the things that I want to talk about really quickly is commercialization. So this happened in June 2020. Juneteenth comes out that not very many people I don't think knew about, or especially, you know, where, where I was, I didn't know about Juneteenth. 
And all of a sudden, companies are giving people the day off. Or, you know, people are commercializing the Black Lives Matter movement. So there's t-shirts, there's mugs, there's merchandise. So I have a couple of questions around this. A, how do we feel about it? Um, B, should it, like, somebody, you know, buying a mug, you know, where is that money going? Is it being poured back into the community? Is it? I don't know. And I don't know all the answers to this. And I want to throw this back at you guys, because I'd like to know more about this. And and I want to know where you're sitting when it comes to the commercialization of this, because like anything, there's money being made. And we want to make sure that, you know, obviously, if there's money being made, it's being put in the right places and putting back into the community and, and making an impact. So what do you guys think? I don't want to go first. I talk all the time. <laughs> Well, and it's okay. It's okay to not know, but we do have to talk about it because it's a part of the movement that, you know, people are buying a mug and saying, I've done my part. Yeah. No, I have an opinion. I just don't want to go first. Okay. (laughs) You go first. Sure. Um, I don't know, right? Like I have no idea all of the sites and micro sites that have been created, like who's created them, where the money's going, like what they're doing with it, that on like a a larger level, I have no idea. Um, Do I think that there's necessarily anything wrong with people wearing this merch or showing their support by purchasing this t-shirt or, you know, wearing this statement piece? Um, I don't. Uh, If that makes you feel good and you feel like you've done a part, I don't think that's the only part that any one of us can do is wearing this shirt. Um, I think we've got to be intentional about what we're doing and how we are really supporting this movement. Um, I think it is definitely more than um, shirts. But again, if someone wants to wear it, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. Um, and myself just being in, you know, logistics in the, the e-commerce space, 95% of the brands that I service are black owned. Um, so, you know, in June, when the Black Lives Matter movement was at its height, also came the Buy Black movement. And so for, you know, on average, all of my businesses saw this 25% to 30% increase in their revenue and what was being sold on their websites because there was this push to now support the Black community. And, you know, instead of walking into Walmart and buying a, a brand I know off the shelf, let me buy something that this influencer recommended. Um So for my brands, you know, the things that were purchased, I know where that money went, right? I know it went to the Black founders and to increase and grow their brand. Um, So I don't think that there was anything wrong with people showing their support in that way. But I don't think that buying or purchasing something should be the only thing that we do um, to, you know, cure our guilt um, or whatever the case may be. I think, again, it goes back to being intentional about how you are living um, daily, the support that you say you have for the movement. Awesome. I'm really glad that you shared that with us, right? Where, where are, did you see a decline in some of the revenue? We have seen a decline in some of the revenue. I would say it was steady for, um, I would say about a quarter and it has, you know, it has since waned. Um, I think, you know, it's just the the height and everybody wants to feel like they're getting behind something um, and they've done something good. It's like, all right, you know, I've, I've done my good thing. I've done my good deed. Now I'm done. Um, so there wasn't, you know, this, this consistency with 
support, right? Support is a verb, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. And that's, that's what needs to stop. It needs to be ongoing. Like I, I, it just, it drives me crazy. And honestly, going into this, I didn't actually realize that that was the case that it, that the support had waned, you know, I, I've, I've been talking about it. I've been, you know, having conversations about it and I didn't realize that was the case. And I'm hoping that this episode will open some eyes so that we can keep it going and we can keep the momentum going and we can keep the support going. Al, I know you've got something to say here. <laughs> so in, in my perspective, maybe tinted or tainted by the fact that, you know, where I've started my career with big brands. So I was with PNG for a while, General Mills. I worked in beer for a while. From my perspective, branding, marketing, advertising, getting the word out, getting the name out is really only a, a good thing. So if it's mugs and t-shirts, so if if Black Lives Matter became as big as Coca, right? So that everybody's wearing in the world is wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt and all that, it's it's going to have an effect of increasing the awareness and increasing the amount of people that are involved and understand and want to get to know more. So um, although everyone, it's going to be kitschy and catchy to some people and everyone's not going to be involved at the same level, it's going to lift the, the, the entire water level up some, which from my perspective helps the entire movement. So I think that, yeah, the process kind of ebbing and flowing and it ebbs, it, it flows, it, it heightens based on atrocities that occur within the black community so that you don't want those types of things to be the 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 fire to spark um height, heights in the movement keep going but i think i think it's a, the more people that can be involved the more questions that'll be asked and answered and it's a it's a good thing perfect and i you know i love that you that you shared that with us because you know i was kind of coming at it like you know i've bought a mug yay you know i'm done but if if you're saying that you know the more we see it which is so true right the more we see it the more we're wearing the t-shirts the more we're drinking from the mugs i mean i do thoughts and coffee you know if i had bought a mug i'll be showing that mug on thoughts and coffee and how many people are going to be seeing that right and those are some of the impacts that maybe we forget about that we can be a part of to make an impact one step at a time. And I and think that those, those. And as white people, especially, I think that's part of the, you know, some of the basic steps is to, you know, state clearly, I am an anti-racist. I don't believe that this is right. I don't believe that this is correct. And I might, I absolutely don't have all the answers or the solutions, but that I am committed publicly that as a person, as a white woman, I want this to change and, you know, that I am open to whatever I need, steps I need to take, whatever feedback I need to be given. But I think, you know, it's, you know, you have to show up. Yeah. And if that, you know, it's, and, and publicly and not just, oh yeah, yeah, like Black Lives Matter. No, like every day publicly. And it's the same, it's the same way I feel about, um, you know, identifying she, her, that I'm cisgender, you know, it, 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 ha it, it normalizes it. It makes it, you know, part of our everyday experience and it's important. And it's important from the people who are kind of the default in power 
to, yeah, to really at the smallest step, just show up and say that. I think that's such an awesome and important statement that you just made. Cause the reality is right, Audrey, you going into the coffee room with a coffee mug that says black lives matter. It makes a statement, the conversations and the people, the, what they talk about around you, they're going to know where you stand and they might not be able to share the hate that they had planned on sharing at that particular moment because they know that that you're not going to take it you're not dealing with it right and i think that's i think that's important and powerful and in a lot of rooms this is i think this is a a white person problem as well if if someone was right in front of me and said something blatantly racist absolutely i'd be like oh my gosh don't say that that's no no that's so wrong but that's not what happens and I think that's where it's like, it's very passive for a lot of people. Cause they're like, oh, my friend doesn't say racist things. You're like, okay, but do they vote for that guy who said, who, who takes money from white supremacists? So that's your contribution. So no, we're not at the point like, no, I'm not, you know, putting a white hood over my face and going out. Okay. But that's, you know, that, that was, a, you know, what has been done you know, maybe previously, and now it's the, well, I'm accepting donations from white supremacists, or I'm supporting a person who I, who I know, I'm pretty sure they don't think that these people should be treated equally. Like, so it's not, it's not blatant sometimes. It's the passive or it's the like, I kind of know, but that's uncomfortable. So I'm just going to not really talk about it. Yeah, true. And, and really, really, really important. Go ahead, JD. Oh, my bad. I think the biggest thing for me is like also realizing that we don't want to hear things like, oh, well, I have black friends. That's that. I don't care. One, two. The other thing I, I want to make, like make very known and clear. I also don't want to hear things like, well, J.D., you're different. You know, you're not like the others. So, you know, that's why, you know, we can talk like this around you because you get it. No, that's that's not okay either, because when I'm not around, what you're letting me know is that the conversation goes a lot deeper, a lot further and a lot more racial on the side of supremacy than you're wanting to lead on to. And you're able to pick up on these social cues to where you're realizing that it's so normal for you to say things that when you have to say, oh, my bad, J.D., I forgot you were there. That's not an excuse. You're just letting me know that you have these conversations so willingly and freely with your friends, your family, that it's okay for it to come out. I need you to feel just as uncomfortable as I feel in a boardroom with all white males and I'm the only black male and I'm the youngest black male. I want you to feel just as uncomfortable as you would in front of your family. Check your dad, check your grandpa, check your grandma. And that uncomfortable feeling that you feel, I want you to know that nine times out of 10, that's what we feel typically when we have to stand up for ourselves, for our families, for our our people and our race and our businesses. It's not a comfortable feeling. I can tell you right now, I was blackballed in the trucking industry for my stance and what I said, 100%. I'm more qualified than 90% of the people that were going for some of these roles But I realized that how I took a stance and one of the guys pulled me back. He's a Fortune 50 VP. And he was like, J.D., there's been conversations about you. He said, I've stood up for you, but there have been conversations about you that they are not wanting to bring you on the team because they believe that you're going to be a proponent of diversifying their boardroom. And I said, you got dang right I would be because I don't think it it is 
it's not okay that I'm always typically the only one that walks in with the quote unquote title. It's actually quite frustrating. And so for you to feel such a fear that I would come in and say, yes, I want to see women. Yes, I want to see people of color, not just black, but I want to see Hispanic, Asian. I want to see a, a leadership team that shows that there's representation for all of your employees, because what I can think of is being that employee and looking up and not ever seeing anyone that looked like me. So it didn't make me want a desire to go up any longer. So these are the things that these conversations that should happen. And the other thing I want to to bring up is that I know it's uncomfortable, guys. I know that some of your friends shocked you and there was white guilt around being uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, but I also understand that there was also a shamefulness that you either felt like you should speak up, but you didn't, or you were ashamed because some of your friends had viewpoints that you, you never really listened to. It was so normal for you to hear them say those things. And then once you kind of got out of the matrix, you started thinking like, dang, all my friends are racist. Jesus, I'm hanging around people that only talk horribly and they're bigots. I know that's a tough feeling, but it's going to be okay. And I think, Sarah, there is a thing that's going to be called like Black Lives Matter, PTSD, COVID PTSD, because some of these people are going through post-traumatic stress where they're realizing like, jeez, my dad is horrible. Crap, I need a counselor. My dad taught me to hate people. and I didn't even realize it. I think this is starting to take place. And there was a fatigue that happened for a lot of my Caucasian friends where one of my buddies called me, said, JD, he's like, I'm tapped out, man. I said, yeah, welcome to being black. I, wow. All I can say is, wow, because I think, and I'm hoping that with a lot of these, these statements and the conversations that we're having today, that we can bring it to the surface and people can talk about it because nobody should be living in their shame or their guilt and they should be able to talk about it. And we should be able to come together and say, hey, you know what? I felt shameful. You know what? I felt guilty. And here's why. And just getting it out there. And, it, and if you're, you're right on this PTSD, and I think that you are, there's going to be a lot of people that need to have a lot of conversations, but they need to get themselves right first. Because that, again, to Audrey's point, is not anybody else's responsibility. Um, especially when it comes to this movement that we're talking about today. So I want to wind this down. Um, there's two things I want to ask about the future. And then I want you guys to give me or the audience one thing that people should walk away from this conversation with. Maybe it's something that they can do. Maybe it's an action step. Maybe it's something to think about. Um, uh, because I really think that it's important that we, we leave the audience with something today. So the first question is, how do we feel about the future generally for the BLM movement, people of color? Are we hopeful? Are we dejected? Do we know where we need? Well, we, we've already talked about where we need to start. So are we hopeful? What do we think that that looks like? And I know nobody has a crystal ball, but I would like to get your, your thoughts and opinions as to maybe what you are hopeful for, what you would like to see, um, something along those lines. So, um, Len, do you want to start? Yeah, I can. Um, kind of as you were saying that, I was 
right? Trying to be introspective and like figure out what I'm hopeful about. Um, I think I'm very conflicted. Am I hopeful? Yes, that is my personality. Um, do I believe that better days are ahead of us and change is coming? Yes, but so did so many others that came before me, right? Like Dr. Martin Luther King. So, so it's, though we are in a different time, are we still in the same place? Um, so I think that's where the conflict comes in for me. I am hopeful. Um, I think the movement is different now. Uh, I think as a race, we are just growing increasingly tired of having the same conversations and not seeing a true turn um, in things. And I, I think that, you know, it's kind of like repentance, right? You repent and true repentance is you repent. I'm sorry. You turn and you go in a completely different direction and you don't turn back and go the same way that you were headed before. Um, so that's a little bit of how I, I feel. I want us to be at a place of repentance and see a true turn. So I'm hopeful. Um, but I don't know what that looks like. I don't know is that my daughter will have this conversation 20 years from now. Um, so I think I'm, I'm in a, a state of conflict about where we truly are and where we're honestly headed. Um, and will we turn back? Thank um, you for, thank you for sharing that honestly, because I think, you know, this is what's needed is the honest conversation of, I don't know, this is what I'd like to see, you know, but is my daughter going to have that conversation? I want to say that I don't want her to. But I can't speak for everybody. So what do you think is the one thing that people should walk away from this conversation with today? Um, I think awareness of where we are today, present, present day. Um, I mentioned that, you know, my parents didn't go to an integrated school until they were 16. Um, I think it is just really realizing that we're not too far removed from where we were. We're making progress. Um, so I think it is just increasing the awareness about really where we are um, and how Black people are treated in this country. And it's it's not much different um, than, you know, the way it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, and even to dig in a little um, to, to try to gain some understanding. I think if we all tried or sought to understand one another a lot more and a lot better, um, then I think that that could place us in a more positive position. Um, I think under, I think understanding, trying to dig in, trying to just be aware, um, and empathetic. Love that. All really, really great suggestions. JD, you're up. So what do you think about the future? And what's the one thing that the audience can should walk away from this conversation today? I think the future is that they should expect the conversation to continue to stay real. I think when we were coming up, you know, um, we heard our grandparents, our parents say what they did to do for civil rights and how they marched or how they were affected or what how it brought about byproducts that affected the, the black community and what they did about that. And we became kind of passive because we're like, man, we just don't really want to, like, we're not trying to do all that right now. Like, you know, my generation, as far as a millennial generation, a lot of us was like, ah, I'm just trying to go to school. I'm just trying to live my best life. Like, give me a little bit of Nelly, a little bit of Beyonce, you know, whatever they listen to, I'm good. You know, they were just trying to live their best life. 
But this conversation is here to stay because we now realize that there's power behind the conversation. I believe the one thing I want people who are listening to take away from this is that I don't believe anyone on this call was pointing at any Caucasian person or anyone that may deem themselves Caucasian or, or not African-American and saying that you suck or that it's your fault or that you should have done this and you should have done that. No one's condemning you. I want you to leave this conversation with the airiness of I'm being educated from direct people who are who have been, who have been affected, but who can actually articulate how we feel. So I pray that no one on this this podcast that's listening feels condemned. I want them to truly go back and utilize this as a space to think. If you've made it this far into the call, take a moment after this, five to 10 minutes, and truly just think and understand the perceptions and maybe listen to it again. And then write out what could you do or how did it make you feel? Leave that, what could you do? How did it make you feel to hear that? and then start talking about action items. And those action items truly start off with a conversation with yourself and then with your close friends. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I too hope that nobody feels like that from this conversation. I, I don't see how that could happen because I feel like everybody on this call has been genuine, been authentic. We've been able to talk through some very uncomfortable parts of this conversation that need to be had. And so hopefully we can eradicate some of that ignorance of people, whether they knew they were ignorant or not, you know, listening to this and real coming to a, a better understanding and realization of themselves and about what's around us and what the future holds. So in saying that, Audrey, you're next. What do you think the future holds? What do you think people should walk away from this conversation? Yeah. So I mean, what the future holds is that if we can keep educating ourselves, um, you know, and getting out of getting out of our ego, getting out of our feelings of of our own kind of insecurities and lack. I mean, the more work you can do on yourself, you know, it's never wasted. Um, you know, there's, I think you know, the more we can, we can question the passive versus the active, um, you know, and realize that, yes, there are people who are actively fine with this system staying in place. And so then understanding what we can do to dismantle that, I think, you know, that's kind of the future thinking. Um, for me, I think we're starting to see it, you know, it takes, I mean, it, this is hundreds of years of buildup into the system we have today. And so is it gonna change overnight? No, and I, I feel the same way that Len does it. It's complicated, it's, you know, and, and hopeful and optimistic, definitely. Um, what I want people but it's, to leave. But it's messy too, right? Oh yeah, well, isn't life is messy, but <laughs> we still try to get a mop and like get it cleaned up. Um, so what's, what do you think the one thing people should leave the conversation with? Should leave the conversation with, um, yeah, don't, that's tough for me, you know, for me, it's remembering that everything in, in my society is geared to protecting and advancing wealthy white men. So 
anytime there's something that is said or that is promoted in the media or, you know, the way things are organized in our neighborhoods or when politicians talk, my first thought is to question who does this benefit? And a lot of what I experience is, is the benefit is towards wealthy people who are privileged, white people who are privileged, the most of our world is physically designed for a default white male who's like 200 pounds, all of our uniforms, like everything. I just question everything. Who does this benefit and who does it work for? And in my upbringing with, you know, with my family, I was raised to do things, you know, if I could, because I have two arms and two legs and is to do things and set things up for the people who are the most disadvantaged. And if I'm not trying to make the world, I don't need to make the world a better place for me. I need to make the world a better place for the people who, you know, it, that the world is not a great place for, right? Um, so yeah, it's one thing you can take away. Question, who is benefiting and what you can do to Love change that. that. Love that. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you. Thank you. Al, last but absolutely not least, let's oh. hear from you. What do you think about the future? What do you think the one pe one thing people should leave the conversation with? So in terms of the future, I think like everyone, I'm hopeful, but I would say that I'm, I'm skeptical on how fast change will occur, positive change will occur. Um, I think, you know, people have talked about all the changes that have come up until this point. I think um, racism and things of that nature are more covert versus overt. And I think the structures that hold people down are much more nuanced and hidden than they were in the past, but they're still there. They still exist and they're still extremely powerful. Uh, Audrey brought up privilege um, and privilege is powerful, right? Like privilege is powerful. Self-interest is powerful. We all when you think about just the term privilege, it's about some sort of an advantage. All of us, I believe, have gone to school, college, we get education, we try to build our networks to create some sort of privilege to give us over someone else, not necessarily due to skin color, but to give us an advantage over people who are we are in competition with, um, to give us an advantage so that we can achieve our goals. That's privilege. We work hard for that privilege. When you talk about white privilege, it's a privilege that exists that didn't really need to work so hard for it. But when you put the mirror up and you say, okay, if I were to denounce this privilege, that means at least in my heart, I am going to have less than I would have had that if that privilege exists or my kids or my kids' kids are going to have less than Am I willing to give it up? So even the most woke person at that point in time is going to have to go to the voting booths. They're going to have to make decisions that may negatively, at least in their heads, affect them and their legacy versus someone else. And I just don't know that everybody is going to make the decision for the greater good rather than for the individual. For me, that's what a lot of this is about. And in terms of one thing, it's it's hold hold everyone accountable hold your organizations accountable i recently so i've been uh, i banked with wells fargo for probably 15 years um six months ago i got out of wells fargo because of the statements that were said 
Um, I try to put money towards you know, diverse communities uh, as much as possible. Speak with your daughter and, and hold every, excuse me, speak with your dollar and hold everyone accountable. I love that. I love that. And I think that that's a great way to end this. Thank you so much to Len, Madison, Al, Audrey, and JD for joining me today. It's not an easy subject and it can be pretty upsetting to tackle. We're not just talking in theory about movements or politics. We're really talking about people's lives and tragic deaths. But I think we can all agree that conversations like this need to happen and they need to happen often if we're going to be part of the healing to create positive change. So thanks again to our sponsors, Ships, Apex, and Mercado for helping to make this show happen. And don't forget to join us again next time for episode six of Blended and more really important discussions around diversity and inclusion. Guys, thank you so much for your genuineness, your authenticity, and for being part of the show today.